Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. This is the famous Man of Sin passage of Scripture. Man of Lawlessness, the Homo Christian Study Bible calls it. King James has Man of Sin. The so-called Antichrist, before we get started, it never calls him the Antichrist in this passage. I will try not to use the word Antichrist the whole time through. Oftentimes people discuss this passage and connect to this man of sin up with the beast of Revelation. And I think that's perfectly legitimate to do so. In fact, I do so. But just to keep it simple, we're not I say simple, relatively simple, we won't mention connections with Revelation. We'll only focus on this passage in Second Thessalonians 2, which my friends, is one of the most difficult passages in the Scripture. Our context is this. In chapter 1, Paul had talked about the coming of the Lord, the Lord Jesus with his angels in flaming fire. Some people say that refers to the end of time. Other people say it refers to eighty seventy. Interestingly enough, the preterist Ken Gentry says it refers to the end of time. And as I was going through it, I didn't realize that he had done that because I take the eighty seventy position because it seems to me it it just flows smoother to be talking about the first Thessalonians second uh, Thessalonians 1 talking about the day of the Lord because first Thessalonians 5 talked about the day of the Lord so if you if you want to keep Paul from jumping back and forth back and forth as the least amount of times as possible well I think that it makes more sense to say that the previous chapter was about 8070 but that's another issue I'm going to assume that for right now that's our context we start in second Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 2 now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him we ask you brothers not to be easily upset in mind or troubled either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come I've already mentioned that this is one of the hardest and most controversial passages of Scripture in the Bible. Augustine threw his hands up. Here's what he said. I confess that I am entirely ignorant of what he means to say. Now, Augustine was one of the greatest theologians of the early Christian church, and he didn't have a foggiest notion of what Paul talks about. So here we are, fools rushing in where angels fear to tread. Now, Paul says concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, that coming has different options as to what it means. It could actually mean the first coming. I'm not going to consider that. That doesn't make any sense to me. Now concerning the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when he came as a baby in Bethlehem, and I being gathered to him as Christians, don't be upset. Well, we're not going to do that. So we're going to focus between 8070, the second option, and the end of the world. Now, John Gill denies that it's 8070. However, Kenneth Gentry, the Orthodox Preterist theologian, says that there are four time indicators that this coming was AD 70. Now, he mentions the four. Now, I'm going to go through them, and I will tell you right now that a futurist could answer these. So these are four indications. They're not slam-dunk arguments. The first argument is the temple in verse 4 is still existence. The man of sin takes his seat in the temple of God. Well, that a futurist could say, well, you can't press the tense that hard. He could be talking about the future even though he uses the present, and that's absolutely true. And uh, you could also say the temple is not the Jer- temple in Jerusalem. It's the church of God. And the church of God is going to be, the church of Christ is going to be in existence 2,000 plus years from now in the future. So that's not a slam dunk in, uh, argument for the preterist. It's an indication only. Second preterist time indicator 
The Thessalonians knew who the restrainer of the man of lawlessness was. Well, in verse 6, Paul says, you know what restrains him now. Well, the preterist argues, how could the Thessalonians know about a restrainer who's going to be restraining 2,000 plus years later, long after they're dead? Well, the answer is a futurist. I'm, I'm stepping, I'm not a futurist, but I'm going to step into the shoes of a futurist and say they could say that the restrainer was the Holy Spirit of the Bible. Futurists do say things like that. And the Thessalonians could know the Holy Spirit now. And they, excuse me, the Holy Spirit at the time that Paul wrote to them. They can know about the scriptures and so forth. So that's not that's an indicator, the fact that the Thessalonians knew about the man of lawlessness, but it's not a slam dunk proof. Third preterist indicator that it's eighty seventy, the restrainer was currently restraining restraining the man of lawlessness. This is in verse six and seven where it says, You know who restrains him now? You know who restrains him now? Yeah, but a futurist could say, Yeah, the restraint started back in Paul's time and continues now for 2,000 plus years till the end of time. And in verse 7, another preterist indicator the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And a futurist could say, yeah, the spirit of the Antichrist has been percolating around already and it's going to percolate for 2,000 years until the end. So these are just indicators. They're not slam dunk arguments for 8070. I think there is a slam dunk argument for 8070, which well, I, I will get to when I finish talking about verses 1 and 2. Now, Adam Clark has got an interesting statement. He says that it refers to AD 70 and the second coming. He says this, quote, Whether does the apostle mean the coming of Christ to execute judgment upon the Jews, that's AD 70, and destroy their polity, or his coming at the end of time to judge the world? What does Paul mean, Clark is saying? There are certainly many expressions in the following verses that may be applied indifferently to either, as I just finished going through four of them. Some seem to apply to the one and not to the other, and yet the whole can scarcely be so interpreted as to suit any one of these comings exclusively. Well, in my opinion, that's like saying that you can be a Calvinist and Arminian at the same time. If you define those two terms, no, you can't. You can't. You either got to be one or the other. You can't be something. You can't be a Calvinian. That is absurd. It's one of my pet peeves to hear people say that, and I think Clark is treading on that same ground when he says it's both 8070 and the second coming why in the world would paul talk about something that was 2000 years apart and not distinguish the two clearly so his readers could understand no that that can't be so this coming here i'm going to leave it right for right now is up in the air between 8070 and the end of time now paul continues in verse one he says now concerning the coming of our lord jesus christ and our being gathered to him well, you say that refers to the end of time, like in First Thessalonians 4:17. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And, of course, all agree, except for the heretical preterists, but all normal people agree that that's referring to the second coming of Christ because it's associated with the resurrection. And there's that same sort of phrasing, caught up together, which is very similar to gathered together. We will all be gathered together to him. Now, the simple preterist answer to that is Matthew 24:31. Again, assuming a preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse, Paul says, Jesus says this, He, God, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. Now, Orthodox preterists interpret angels there as messengers, because the Greek can mean either one. The messengers of the gospel will go out. That's the evangelists, the apostles, and so forth. And they will gather his elect. They will get them saved. This all, occur, of course, occurs after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and so I think that fits 
this phrase right here that Paul is using fits right in with Matthew 24, 31. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in AD 70, and then we're going to be gathered to him just like Jesus said in Olivet Discourse. Now, there are other options beside that, besides the second, besides gathering to, with, to be with Jesus when we are caught up with him in the air, First Thessalonians 4, or the, whether gathered to him as we're being converted after AD 70. Let me give you some other options to show you some of the speculations that have been done about this word gathered. John Gill suggest, uh, denies this, but he says some people say that it refers to the great gatherings of those who came to Christ at his first coming. John Gill also suggests but denies that it refers to the gathering of the Jews, a great conversion of the Jews that happens at the end of time in Romans 11. That's a controverted interpretation of Romans 11, by the way. Not everybody believes that that's what Romans 11 means, but some people speculate that this is the gathering. Here's another speculation. In our gathering together with him, it refers to the assembling of the saints for worship, the coming of the Lord and our assembling of our saints for worship. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I don't know what the coming of the Lord would have to do with our assembling together. Seems sort of a stretch to me. Now, I'm going to give you an, another preterist interpretation besides the one I gave. The that one I gave, I think, is much better than Gentry's, but Ken, Kenneth Gentry's, which I'm going to give you now, he says that the gathering together is when Christians are gathered together as a distinct Christian body separate from Judaism. The Greek is episunagoges, which is the same Greek word that's used in Hebrews 10.25, episunagogain, the same root. Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to gather together as the habit of some. And so he's saying that it means meet together as Christians as opposed to Jews. This, of course, happened when the day of the Lord, eighty seventy came. Christians had fled to Pella, and they, well, at least that made it obvious, and the Christians were obviously separate from Judaism right around that time. Well, that's an interesting speculation I think Gentry has, but I really think it just means gathered together to getting saved in general, as, as Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. All right, we move on now to verse 2. We ask you, brothers, verse 2, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter. The spirit there probably refers to a prophecy, according to Albert Barnes, John Gill, Jameson Fawcett, and Brown, a prophecy. For example, false prophets in Thessalonica could be saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Now, if you'll notice the if you'll notice the the wording carefully, it doesn't say that the spirit doesn't need to be included in those things as if from Paul. It was the message that could 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 have come from Paul, but not necessarily the spirit. Why would Paul send the spirit, either by spirit or by message or by letter, as if from us? It's not the spirit as if from Paul or Paul Timothy and Silas, but by a message or by a letter, those are what might have come from Paul, Timothy, and Silas, not the Spirit. The Spirit will be a false prophet. However, if you think that the Spirit came from Paul that was saying that the day of the Lord have come, that would have to mean that the Paul gave a prophecy and somebody later misconstrued what Paul had prophesied. For example, the Thessalonians themselves could have misconstrued it. All the false teachers at Thessalonica could have misconstrued it. This is all Barnes. Marvelous speculations. I think it's just easier to think there's a false prophet there in Thessalonica that will say the day of the Lord had come. Now, there's possibly a letter that was saying that the day of the Lord had come, thus deluding the Thessalonians. Now, Barnes says that the critics, commentators are equally divided by what this letter was. Some people say it was the letter of First Thessalonians, that the 
Thessalonians themselves misinterpreted to say that the day of the Lord had already come. Remember, Paul had talked about the gathering together of the, excuse me, talked about the resurrection of the saints, dead saints, and the transform. Well, he didn't mention the transformation of the alive saints, but he said that the dead saints would be resurrected and would be go to the Lord in the air first before the transformed saints would. So apparently, according to these critics, the Thessalonians had misinterpreted that and thought this was going to happen very soon, so they didn't have to go to work. They didn't have to work. The other option that half the critics think is that it was a letter forged in Paul's name saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Barnes leans to that. Gill and Clark mention it. I think that it sounds like that. It says a letter as if from us. As if doesn't sound like First Thessalonians. That really was from Paul, not as if it was from Paul. And then in verse 3, Paul says, Don't let anyone deceive you. Well, that doesn't sound like a misinterpretation of Paul's letter of the First Thessalonians. That sounds like a fake letter, a false letter that somebody's using to deceive the Thessalonians. And, of course, forgeries were very common in the New Testament era. He says a spirit or a letter that is from us. The us, of course, is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They are associated in the salutation in verse 1 of Second Thessalonians chapter 1 that the day of the Lord had come. Now, of course, day of the Lord, as I've shown in previous audios, it, you can do a search on it, and it, in the Old Testament, there's a, it refers to the judgment coming on Egypt, the judgment coming on Babylon, the judgment coming on Israel. It does not necessarily mean the end of the world. And I will say the great majority of the times, it does not mean the end of the world. So we need to get that prejudicial notion out of our heads as we try to objectively look at what this day of the Lord is. Now, Adam Barnes, who is a futurist himself, mentions that a lot of the old commentators say that it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and that's the position I'm going to take. And so that before the day of the Lord comes, there has to be an apostasy, as Paul's going to say in a minute. And this falling away, this apostasy, would be right before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, who are some of the scholars that have, old scholars that have held to this view that Barnes tells us about. Now remember, Barnes is a futurist, but he's telling us that, hey, the old scholars took a preterist 8070 view of this day of the Lord. He mentions Campegius Vitringa, who actually wasn't a preterist. He was an historicist. He thought all this referred to, or he most, most of the events referred to the Protestant Reformation, but he did say here the day of the Lord was 8070. And then Henry Hammond, who was the royal chaplain of King Charles I in the early 17th century in England. He was called the father of English exegesis Unfortunately, he was an Armenian, a strong Armenian, I think he was. He says the day of the Lord there is 8070. And then there's Daniel Whitby. If you read post-millennial eschatology, you will see him quoted a lot. He, that's what he's known for. It's coming up with is emphasizing post-millennialism. He was a strong Armenian, unfortunately. I think he was an astarsis. I couldn't quite tell from what I read about him briefly. He was a clergyman in the Church of England. He believed it was 8070. Now, Hugo Grotius, you might have heard of, because he's famous in secular history. He was a Dutch humanist, diplomat, lawyer, theologian, jurist, playwright, and poet. This dude was a polymath. The reason I've heard about him so much is that, well, he was mentioned in secular history when I was taking history in my undergraduate course. And then when I taught international business law in China and universities in China, his name came up all the time in the introductory chapters because he was the guy that laid the foundations for international law. He said that people operated according to a law of nature, even though there was no parliament that passed laws of international trade. 
that people just, by sense, a sense of common morality and, and common practice and habit, came up with their own laws that people obeyed internationally, even though there was no superimposed government. So he's famous for that. So he was no slouch, is what I'm trying to tell you. And unfortunately, he was Armenian too. But he believed that this coming was in 8070. Then there's Johann Jacob Wettstein, or Wettstein, 1693 to 1754. Daniel Whitby, by the way, was 1638-1726, and Hugo Grotius was earlier, 1583 to 1645, and Wettstein is 1693-1754. So our time frame is in the 1600s, 1700s for these guys. He uh, Wettstein was a Swiss theologian and biblical critic. He spent most of his life studying manuscripts. That's what he was famous for. And unfortunately, he was Armenian, who was later accused of being a heretic, but not at the time that he wrote he said it was 8070. So it's really interesting. Most of the old commentators who take a preterist position here were Arminian, but today most preterists are Reconstructionist Calvinist. I'm not either one. I'm a Calvinist, but I'm not a Reconstructionist. I'm a New Covenant theology guy, and I'm definitely not an Arminian. And I just point that out to say you can't worry about stuff like that. When you're talking about a particular issue, you can't worry about what somebody's theological position is on everything else. Yeah, I wish so many Orthodox preterists today weren't Reconstructionists like Kenneth Gentry, but I can reject his Reconstructionism, which I do with a great deal of vigor, passion, and desire. But that doesn't mean I'm going to throw out what he says on preterism, which I think makes an awful lot of sense. Now, here Barnes holds that the... 8070 in the apostasy is the falling away to the Mohammedans. He says that it could be referring to the falling away from Rome in the time of the Reformation. Some Catholics hold that. And that would be a historicist view. And the futurist view is be, would be the falling away to the Antichrist at the end of the world. Actually, interestingly enough, most Catholics hold that. They like to be futurists. They don't like that historicist view because it makes them look like the Antichrist. Now, we've got to go to the end of verse 1. Excuse me, verse 2, which says, This spirit, a message, or letter, as if from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, is alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Well, interestingly enough, that translation of has come is very ambiguous, and the English translations translate it two different ways. It can be translated as my version that I'm using here, the Holman Christian Study Bible, is has come. The New American Standard Bible does so, says has come. The Weymouth translation says is as if the day of the Lord is now here. Young's literal translation is, as if the day of the Lord hath arrived. The Bible in basic English says, as if the day is even now come. And the Darby translation says, don't be deceived with a letter, as if the day is of the Lord is present. The God's Word translation says, don't be deceived, as if the day of the Lord has already come. But there are a lot of other translations that say, that translated, don't be deceived, as if the day of the Lord is near, which is not quite the same thing as as come. The King James has, don't be deceived, as if the day is at hand. The Mace New Testament, that was early 18th century translation. Don't be deceived, as if the approach of the day of the Lord has, is, is here. The Montgomery New Testament say, don't be deceived, as if the day of the Lord is at hand. The New American Bible says, don't be deceived, as if the day of the Lord is at hand. The Wesley translation says, don't be deceived as if the day of the Lord were at hand. The American Standard Version says, don't be deceived as if the day of the Lord were just at hand. So you see, there's a lot of 
there's a huge split in the translations. Well, what's the relevance of this? Well, which translation is correct affects the interpretation of the man of sin passage. If you say, don't be deceived as if the day of the Lord is hand is at hand, that makes it reasonable to think Paul was referring to the second coming. The approaching doom would cause the Thessalonians to be shaken because the judgment was coming. However, if you take the translation to be the day, don't be deceived as if the day of the Lord is at hand, it could also be reasonable to think that Paul was referring to AD 70 because there's going to be a lot of judgment coming down, a lot of uproar, a lot of chaos, and they might have been shaken by that. So the, the it is at hand translation doesn't affect the preterist futurist discussion at all in this passage. But now if you use the translation that I use, the day of the Lord has come, this makes it more reasonable to think that Paul's referring to AD 70. Because why would the Thessalonians think the second coming had already come? Nothing unusual had happened in Thessalonica to make them think that the second coming had happened. There was no redemption of the, of the world from its corruption. Where was Jesus appearing where every eye can see him? Where is the resurrection of the saints from the tomb? Well... Again, if you assume the translation has come, you can ask the questions, well, why would the Thessalonians erroneously, erroneously think the destruction of Jerusalem already occurred? So in other words, it appears that if you translate it as has come, you've got a problem either way. If you're a futurist, well, how can you think the second coming at the end of time had come? There's no resurrections. There's no Jesus. But on the other hand, if you think that Paul is talking about the coming of judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. Why would the Thessalonians think that had happened? Because Jerusalem was still standing, was it not? Well, think about this, though. From Thessalonica to Jerusalem, Thessalonica today is Salonica, and I looked up on one of these distance travel apps that you can find on the Internet and discovered that it was about 3,120 miles from Thessalonica to Jerusalem. That's by air. Excuse me. That's by driving, assuming there's a road that you can drive on. And again, that might that might not have been the case back then. But the Roman roads were fairly good, and you could at least walk. I looked up an a, a Internet resource to talk about how far you could travel on land. A messenger without goods could walk about 20 miles today. Well, but let's say they weren't walking. Let's say they were using a donkey or something, or using a horse relay. I guess the official messengers would have horses. And so... I found an article by A.M. Ramsey, the speed of the Roman Imperial Post, 41 to 64 miles per day. So let's just say 50 day, 50 miles to make a round number. So if it's 3,120 miles by road you, and you can travel 50 miles a day, it would take 62 days for news of Jerusalem's downfall to arrive. So it would be reasonable for a false prophet or a false letter to arrive at the Thessalonians and says, Hey, Jerusalem's gone down. It's destroyed. And it would take about two months for the Thessalonians to confirm that. During that two months, Paul could have sent the letter and say, Hey, my friends, Jerusalem hadn't gone down yet. The day of the Lord hadn't happened yet. One might object and say, Well, why couldn't Paul just say, Hey, the day of the Lord hasn't come because Jerusalem's still standing? Well, because the Thessalonians could say, Well, how do we know it's still standing? This letter we got from Paul could be lying too. We don't know. It takes two months for a message from Jerusalem to get to Thessalonica to tell us that the Jerusalem is still standing. All right, so if we take the translations as don't be deceived as if the day of the Lord has come, it would have to be 8070, even though there are some difficulties in that. It, it, 
it's impossible to think it refers to the second coming. In my, in my view, I don't say how you can say that. On the other hand, if you say the day of the Lord is near, well, I've already said that, that would mean that could refer to either the second coming or 8070 judgment coming. Well, just to keep the futurist in the game, I'm going to take the translation, don't be deceived to think that the day of the Lord is at hand, near, not has come. We go now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now notice, Paul is trying to convince them that the day of the Lord had not come. He doesn't use the argument of that Jesus has appeared, that the tombs have been opened, the earth has been transformed from its corruption. He doesn't use any of that. He just says the, there's an apostasy and a man of lawlessness that, lawlessness that hasn't shown up yet. That's how we know the day of the Lord hasn't shown up yet. Notice he also doesn't say, hey, the day of the Lord has not come because the Jerusalem temple is still standing because that would not necessarily prove anything to the Thessalonians. They can say, well, it might be destroyed. We don't know. We hadn't heard yet. So Paul uses these two signs, apostasy and the man of lawlessness. Barnes, talking about being deceived about the day of the Lord coming, says, quote, There is almost no subject on which caution is more proper and on which men are more liable to delusion. He's just talking about how hard it is to interpret this passage. And then when it talks about the apostasy must come first, here's what Barnes says, quote, There is scarcely any passage of the New Testament which has given occasion to greater diversity of opinion than this. Yes, that's true. Well, let's look at some options on this apostasy. Here's a, option number one from Barnes. It's the great apostasy from the Christian church before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That happens to be what I believe. Barnes, I don't think, believes that, but he suggests it. He quotes these commentators I mentioned to you before, the 17th and 16th century commentators, Vitringa, Whitby and Hammond, who say that's what it is, the falling away of the Christian church before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. This would be mentioned by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verses 10 through 12. Then many will take offense, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. And so... Orthodox preterists generally take that to refer just before 8070. Here's another idea of what apostasy could be. The great apostasy of Christians going to the Catholic Church, which continued all the way up until the time of the Reformation. This is John Gill's. John Gill suggests this position. It's in a starist position. So there's the preterist. I've given you the preterist position, apostasy before 8070. The starist position, apostasy up until the time of the Revelation. And here's the futurist view, the great apostasy at the end of the world. Most futurists hold to this, and this is why they end up being very pessimistic about the progress of the gospel. Now the other sign in verse 3 of Second Thessalonians 2 that Paul says is going to happen before the day of the Lord comes is that there will be a man of lawlessness, or as the King James has it, a man of sin who will be revealed. He's called the son of destruction. Now, of course, that's the main problem we have in this passage is who is this man of lawlessness, this man of sin? Who is he? Well, I'm going to give, and let me just tell you up front that future is split all over the place on this. There's a million different possibilities. Preterist have a lot less possibilities, but even they split on who it is. I'm going to take the a preterist 
view of this that is referring to Nero. Now, the reason that there's differences of opinion in the preterist camp over who this is is because the case is not iron tight for Nero. It's a, it's a, it's a case you have to argue. It's not going to be obvious, but I'm going to try to argue it as I go through. But before I get into arguments for proving that the man of lawlessness, lawlessness is Nero, let's l take a look at all the speculations as to who this man of lawlessness might be. The Jewish nation, Simon Magus, Caligula, Titus and the Flavian dynasty, Mohammed, the future Antichrist at the end of the world, the Pope, the devil, Herod the Great and Herod's dynasty. So, I mean, you know, it goes on and on. Let's just take this catharsist argument that the man of sin is the Pope. Here's some arguments in favor of that. Now, generally, I don't deal with catharsism because I think it's just not worth the trouble. And I know I know there's a lot of good people out there that are catharsis, but I really don't think it's worth the trouble. Here is their argument is centered on the fact that the general character of the papacy is pretty wicked. Here's here's Barnes quote. It might be sufficient to refer to the general character of the papacy and to its influence in upholding and perpetuating various forms of iniquity in the world. It would be easy to show that there's been no dynasty or system that has contributed so much to uphold and perpetuate sins of various kinds on the earth as the papacy. No other one has been so extensively and so long the patron of superstition, and there are vices of the grossest character which have all along been fostered by its system of celibacy, indulgences, monasteries, and absolutions. But it would be a better illustration of the meaning of the phrase, man of sin is applicable to the Pope of Rome, to look at the general character of the popes themselves. Though there may have been some exceptions, there never has been a succession of men of so decidedly wicked character as have occupied the papal throne since the great apostasy commenced. The great apostasy there is referring to the people falling into the away from the evangelical gospel into the Catholic Church. Here's another quote by Barnes. Quote, Pope John II was publicly charged at Rome with incest. Pope John Thirteenth usurped the pontificate, spent his time in hunting and lasciviousness and monstrous forms of vice. He fled from the trial to which he was summoned and was stabbed, being taken in the act of adultery. Pope Sixtus IV licensed brothels at Rome. Pope Alexander VI was, as a Catholic, Roman Catholic historian says, one of the greatest and most horrible monsters in nature, in nature that could scandalize the holy chair. His beastly morals, his immense ambition, his insatiable avarice, his detestable cruelty, his furious lust, and monstrous incest with his daughter Lucretia are at large described by Giardini Giaconius and other authentic papal historians. Of the popes, Platina, a Roman Catholic, says, quote, The chair of St. Peter was usurped rather than possessed by monsters of wickedness, ambition, and bribery. They left no wickedness unpracticed. Now I will say that is sort of an attractive argument. The man of sin, well, look at all the sin that was there in the papacy. I mean, even Roman Catholic historians are relating all this sin. Well, I'm going to assume that all the arguments in favor of a Nero of preterism in general and of Nero being the man of sin will not only apply against futurists, but they will also apply against historicists. I just mentioned this to show you this is kind of how their thinking goes on this. One other interesting speculation is that the Antichrist was Herod the Great. I don't believe that. But Philip Morrow, who's the great commentator, used to be a lawyer, and he ended up writing theology, mainly anti-dispensational type theology. He says that Daniel 11, verses 36 and 37 refers to Herod the Great, and he's convinced me, as well as Gary DeMar, 
And this is what Daniel says about Herod. Then the king, Herod, I'm assuming this is Herod, will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say outrageous things against the god of gods. Well, that sounds like an antichrist. Or excuse me, I, I shouldn't have said, I didn't mean to say antichrist. I meant to say man of sin. It never, the Bible never connects up antichrist with the man of sin. That is a habit. I just fell into that habit and I shouldn't have done it. Here's some more speculations, more loose speculations about who this man of sin is. Barnes says that man of sin is a Hebraism, meaning a man of eminent wickedness, distinguished for depravity. Well, we've already said that. That's, but, but he goes on to say that this may refer to a single person or a series of persons. Well, man of sin sure sounds like one man to me. A man of sin it doesn't say men of sin. It says man of sin. I don't know what kind. Of, I don't think that. I don't know Hebrew, but it doesn't. In English, let's put it this way: in English, it doesn't sound like a succession of people. Most people don't hold that. Now, I mentioned earlier, and I'm going to not do this, but many people tie this man of sin with the sea beast in Revelation, which I believe refers to the Roman Empire. But there is nothing that really ties the man of sin with the sea beast. So you have to examine those two questions independently. And, of course, Nero is a representative of the Roman Empire. But we're not going to go to Revelation to say, see, there, the sea beast is the Roman Empire. Therefore, that proves it is Nero in First Thess- Second Thessalonians 2 because you can't do that. There's no, no evidence. So the man of sin is often called the beast. Can't do that. He's the man of sin. He's often called the Antichrist. But there's no specific character named the Antichrist in all of Scripture. They are Antichrist, plural, but no the Antichrist. Paul here in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 says that the man of sin is called the son of destruction, which is the same title given to Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition. The King James has it, the son of destruction. He is evil and he will destroy. So now we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He, that's the man of lawlessness, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he sits, on God's, sits in God's sanctuary or God's temple, publicizing that he himself is God. Now, a lot of historicists like to point to this verse and say, see there, this really describes the papacy, and it does. It sounds like the Pope. I don't believe it. Here's a quote from Barnes, quote, authority above all kings and emperors. Talking about the Pope, he says, he has authority above all kings and emperors, deposing some and advancing others, obliging them to prostrate themselves before him, to kiss his toe, to hold his stirrup, to wait barefooted at his gate, treading even upon the neck and kicking off the imperial crown with his foot. This is medieval history. I, I read a lot of medieval history in college. It's fascinating. And the whole, you can sum up medieval history in one word, in one sentence. The conflict between the Pope and the secular authority for ultimate authority in society. And this is what Barnes is referring to. Uh, here's a quote from John Gill, quote, this mon- referring to the Pope, This monster of iniquity and firstborn of Satan, the Popes of Rome, have exalted themselves above these. They have not only took upon them to excommunicate emperors and kings, but to depose them and take away their crowns from them and give their kingdoms to others and absolve their subjects from allegiance and fidelity to them. An emperor has held a pope's stirrup while he alighted from his horse and was severely reprimanded for holding the left instead of the right stirrup. And the same emperor held another pope's stirrup while he got on his horse and who set his foot upon the neck when he absolved him, upon his neck when he absolved him before being excommunicated by him. So there you have a, a picture of a pope standing on the necks of emperors. Well, all that sounds very good as far as a man of sin, but the time indicators are the problem that Paul is trying to show 
what's going to happen before the day of the Lord comes? All right, well, if this man ascends the Pope and the Pope has been overthrown, which he basically was during the Protestant Reformation, where's the opening of the graves? Where's the return of Jesus bodily? Where is he? Where's the redemption of the earth from its bondage to decay? Did that happen in the early 16th century at the time of the Reformation? No, it did not. So I don't think this the man of sin can refer to the Pope. Now, this whoever this man of sin, well, let me right here, I'm going to start saying this. it's Nero just to see if it fits. But before we do that, actually, we need to see what God's sanctuary could be. It could either be the church, as John Gill affirms, or it could be the temple in Jerusalem. If you say it's the church, well, how can you say the Catholic Church was God's sanctuary? The Pope will put himself into the God's sanctuary, into God's temple, because the Catholic Church is not God's temple. You could say the same thing about the temple in Jerusalem. That's that's a basically a pagan temple by now. It's not a it's not really pagan. I'm sorry, but it's it's not Christian. It's Antichrist, and it do, it doesn't belong to God anymore. So how can you call it God's sanctuary? And think about it. No matter where, no matter what the temple is, whether the church or the temple in Jerusalem, as soon as you put a man of sin in it, it's not going to be a true church anymore. It's not going to be a true temple anymore, a true temple of God. So when this phrase here says God's sanctuary, it has to mean it's called God's sanctuary, even though it's not actually God's sanctuary when the man of sin gets in it, or even before the man of sin gets in it. It's just called God's sanctuary. All right, so I'm going to assume now, starting now, that Nero is the man of sin who exa- who sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. Now, the first problem that we have with this view, and by the way, Kenneth Gentry is the main proponent of this view, when did Nero ever sit in the temple of God? Gentry makes the argument that the Greek doesn't mean that he actually sat in the temple of God, he just intended to. The argument goes like this. The, the Greek word hoste, which means so that, when it's used with an infinitive, it may indicate purpose. It doesn't have to, but it may indicate purpose. Not It doesn't necessarily mean a purpose accomplished, but just a, an intention. The Greek there is hoste alton aston neon to theo kathisai. The hoste is the hoste, and the kathisai is the infinitive, to sit, so that, to sit. Now, to show that hoste plus an infinitive can mean an intention to do something rather than an actual accomplishing of that thing, we can read in Luke 4.29 this. They, this is the Nazarenes, got up, drove him, Jesus, out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. The intending is hoste, so that, and to hurl is the infinitive so that to hurl him over the cliff, so that to hurl. Well, they didn't hurl him over the cliff. They meant to, but they didn't actually do it. Now, in Gentry's famous article, he's not really precise as to what emperor or what temple was intended. At least I I couldn't tell it. But let's assume it's talking about Nero here. We can make the argument that Nero intended to sit in the temple. Now, the next question is, is what temple did he intend to sit in? The temple of God, the church, or the temple of God in Jerusalem? Now, in this case, if you're talking about the church, it could be the true church of God, because he didn't actually sit in the true church of God even when he wanted to. When did Nero intend to sit in the church? Well, when he started his famous persecution of the church, of course, Nero's famous. He invented Roman candles, wrapping Christians up into animal skins and lighting them up for his garden parties and so forth raping prisoners in jail and all this kind of horrible stuff the man did. And he was a beast. 
That's when he intended to sit in the church. He wanted to take authority over the church. He intended to sit in the church in the sense of God, in the sense of I'm a God and I demand honor, and you quit worshiping Jesus, you worship me instead. He wanted to sit amongst the Christians as a God, and in order to get the Christians to do that, he had to persecute them. Now, if he had succeeded in, in heading up the Christian church and stomping out the religion of Jesus, the church would be called, would be called God's sanctuary, but would not actually be God's sanctuary. Well, let's take Gentry's view that the man of sin intended to sit in the temple of God, and the temple of God is the Jerusalem temple. Well, now, it's a reasonable speculation to say Nero intended to sit in the temple. His predecessor, Caligula, the emperor, intended to sit in the temple, intended to put his idol in the Jerusalem temple until he was talked out of it because of political reasons. Thank goodness that would have been a horrible situation. All right, so... That takes care of the view of the of the of the argument against Nero being the man of sin. If you say that, well, he never sat in the temple of God. Well, he didn't have to sit in the temple of God. He intended to sit in the temple of God, either the church or the temple in Jerusalem. Now, there's another argument that Gentry does not use. This is my argument. You can take it with a grain of salt, but it is possible that Nero actually sat in the temple of God. Now, if we assume that the temple is Jesus' church and not the Jerusalem temple, which is a reasonable assumption, how can we say that Nero actually sits in the church of God, substituting himself for Jesus as God? How can we say that? Well, if you look at Thayer's lexicon, one of the definitions of to sit, kathisai, favors that. It, here's the definition, to set, appoint, to confer a kingdom on one. And that's when the verb is used transitively, and the object is auton, him, to set him to set him on the throne so when nero is said to sit on the throne so that he sits not excuse me not on the throne so that he sits in god's sanctuary if we use that definition of to sit to set to appoint to confer a kingdom on himself and that's exactly what nero would try to do as he tries to usurp jesus's place in the church by persecuting the church he actually sat on the throne as God. All right, that's the weak point in the Nero view, and that's how a preterist would defend against it. I leave it for you to decide whether that makes any sense or not. This man of sin would publicize himself that he's God. Now, Barnes says that this would not mean that the man of lawlessness claimed in so many words to be God, rather that he usurped the place of God and claimed God's prerogatives. And I think that's sort of relevant here because it's hard to find where Nero said he was a God Although I found one website, and I couldn't, he, with no reference, that said Nero also claimed to be divine, as Augustus had been Zeus incarnate, so Nero was an Apollo incarnate. Even Seneca, the philosopher and, and a political advisor to Nero, even Seneca called him as the long-awaited savior of the world. And Ethelbert Stauffer, the famous church historian who's got a book called uh, Christ and the Caesars, famous book. He has a chapter in there called Nero the World Savior. So I haven't researched that deep enough to really find a sp spot where Nero himself claimed to be God. He did have a huge gold statue made of himself. <laughs> it was very tall. But even if he didn't explicitly claim to be God, he was worshipped as God because the people all over the empire worshipped the emperors. Now sometimes the emperors just tolerated it. They didn't actually encourage it. Sometimes they... Augustus actually forbid it outside the city of Rome, but you could do it outside of Rome. And, uh, and so Caligula actually demanded worship as a, as, a, as a god. 
most of the time it was just done, and the emperors put up with it because it helped their legitimacy. But at any rate, we assume that Nero claimed to be God, publicizing himself to be God. Verse 5, now we move to in Second Thessalonians 2. Paul continues, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this? That means they would have understood the man of sin and so forth when they read it because Paul had already taught them about it. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have heard that little talk because then we wouldn't be spending hours studying this thing trying to figure out who the man of sin is. So Paul had apparently spent a great deal of time talking eschatology to such a young church. A young church. He's talking about the day of the Lord. He was not a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. We go now to Second Thessalonians 2.6. And you know what currently restrains him so that he would be revealed in his time. Now that him is in brackets, is not in the Greek. So literally it's saying you know what currently restrains so that he will be revealed in his time. Or so that it will be revealed in his time. So here are options on who the restrainer is. This is another thorny problem. The futurists have all kinds of speculations, angels, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, all kind of things restraining that future Antichrist and the man of sin at the end of the world who's going to take over the world and start a one-world government. The historicist says the restrainer is some unknown civil authority restraining the Pope. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. The restrainer is, quote, the moral and conservative influence of political states, the fabric of human polity as a coercive power, as he who now restrains refers to those who rule that polity by which the great upbursting of godliness is kept down. Fancy way of saying it's the government keeping the popes down. The Roman emperors, in other words, as John Gill says. Again, referring to that eternal conflict in the Middle Ages between the civil authority and the church. Well, again, I don't believe the Astarsis position because I don't see any Jesus and I don't see any tombs being opened at the Protestant Reformation. And you know what currently restrains him so that he would be revealed in his time. Now, assuming that the man of sin is Nero, who would it be that restrains this man of sin? Well, Gentry suggests Claudius restrained Nero because Nero and his because Claudius kept did not want Nero to be the emperor, and so Nero and his mother Agrippina killed Claudius. If you've seen the movie I Claudius, I think he put him under a pillow. I don't know whether that's true or whether that's the movie, but they killed Claudius. And so the restrainer was taken out of the way, and then Nero became the emperor. And as often stated here, this is kind of clever, Paul possibly used a wordplay to hint at Claudius, because the Latin word for restraint is claudere, which is similar to Claudius. The, Paul, of course, is writing in Greek, but he figures that the Thessalonians would could translate the Greek to Latin and see that Claudari in there and say, ah, oh, that's Claudius. Of course, Paul doing that under the table so that people, if they intersected his letter, they couldn't get him in trouble with the Roman government. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. That's just an interesting speculation. Now, Paul says, and you know what currently restrains him. That means that the Thessalonians knew who, who he was or who, who what was restrained. Again, the hymn is not in the Greek, so it's somebody restraining something. And Paul had already told them what it was. So it makes you tend to think that it was something that was relevant to the Thessalonians at that time, not something that's going to be relevant 2,000 plus years later. Now, it could be something that lasts for 2,000 years. I realize that. I don't think it's likely. Let's look a little bit at the 
implications of leaving the hymn out. My Holman Christian Study Bible has hymn in brackets because it's not in the Greek. And you know what currently restrains, restrains, well, it could be the apostasy. You know what currently restrains the apostasy. Well, what would that be? I don't know. I think it makes more sense to, to, to just assume that Paul meant you know what currently restrains the man of sin so that he will be revealed in his time. As the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it, I think that's reasonable. All right, well, let's assume it's Claudius. He's assassinated now. Then Nero will come to the fore. Second Thessalonians 2, 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. Of course, assuming the one now restraining is Claudius, he restrains until he's out of the way when Agrippina, Nero's mother, kills him. We go now to verse 7 in Second Thessalonians 2. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. Now the one now restraining, that indicates a present time frame for Paul's writing. That restrainer, whoever he is, has to be restraining in AD 51 when Paul's writing this letter, as well as restraining at the end of time if you're a futurist or restraining at the time of the Protestant Reformation if you're an historicist. Now, I know it's logically possible you can postulate some kind of restraint on a future Antichrist that was working for 2,000 years. But again, I just wonder what kind of relevance that's got to have for the for the Thessalonians. Hey, you know about this restrainer. He's going to be restraining for 2,000 years. And when you're 2,000 years old, that'll tell you that the day of the Lord is about to come because the restrainer's taken out of way. The man of the lawlessness appears, and the day of the Lord's about to come, and you're 2,000 years old, and it's about to happen. Do we really want to think that? I, I have a hard time with that. That's why I'm not a futurist. Now, Paul talks about the mystery of lawlessness. Now, mystery is a term that Paul uses all the time. He talks about the Gentiles and the Jews were a mystery that there'd be one in the church. He talks about the incarnation as a mystery. He talks about the crucifixion was a mystery. He uses the word everywhere, all through his letters. It's a term that was used in the mystery religions. Talked about esoteric secret knowledge that devotees of the religion had and which should never be revealed to anybody. But Paul turns it around and connects the word mystery with with revealed in most of the cases if you do a word study on mystery. He doesn't do it here, but in general, his use of the word mystery means it's something that was hidden in the past by God, but is now revealed and needs to be spread. So he's saying that this mystery of lawlessness is something that was hidden, and it's, and it's working now, but hidden. And the mystery of lawlessness, as Jameson Fawcett Brown say it probably is a counterwork to the mystery of godliness that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 3.16. And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So we've got two opposite forces working now, the mystery of godliness, that's Jesus, versus the mystery of lawlessness. So already it worked. He was working there in AD 51 when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. But the one now restraining will do so till he is out of the way. Now Paul doesn't say it, but I assume that the mystery of lawlessness is being do, done by the man of lawlessness. I mean, we've got the words there, lawlessness in both cases. Now this lawlessness that's being, that's a mystery that's been work, already at work, that's probably connected with the man of lawlessness, has oftentimes been speculated upon is not necessarily being connected with the man of lawlessness. For his example from Barnes, quote, Doddridge correctly supposes that this may refer to the pride and ambition of some ministers, the factious temper of some Christians, the imposing of unauthorized severities, the worship of angels, etc. 
In other words, the Catholic evil that's percolating in the church. So it's not, well, historicists would say that. So, But uh, if you're not an historicist you can, and you want to call, talk about lawlessness, you just say that's the typical lawlessness of Christians who are not behaving properly. I think that's too loose in my humble opinion. I think you need to tie it to that man of lawlessness however you can. Here's Gentry's speculation, quote, This is perhaps a reference to the evil conniving and plotting of Nero's mother, Agrippina, who may have poisoned Claudius so that Nero could ascend to the purple. The true nature of lawlessness was already at work in the imperial cultus and its rage for worship, though it had not yet jealously broken out upon the Christian community. In addition, the cunning machinations to secure imperial authority for Nero were afoot. I think that Gentry's speculation is the best here. The mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of the man of sin, all that plotting that Nero's mother. It's fascinating stuff. You read the Roman history about it. It's a little bit complicated, but it's fascinating how Agrippina got Nero on the throne. Nero was not Claudius's blood son, and there was another guy, Britannicus, who was much better would have been a much better emperor. Unfortunately, he got assassinated too, or poisoned. But anyway, all that plotting and stuff going on, that sounds like the mystery of lawlessness already worked. I think Gentry might be right on the money there. We go to 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. That's when the restrainer is taken away, when Agrippina, excuse me, Claudius is taken away by Agrippina. Then the lawless one, Nero, will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. Now, historically, Nero was committed suicide in 68 when the people finally got disgusted with him and there was a palace revolt and the the Praetorian Guard, I believe it was, the Roman soldiers tracked him out of Rome and he finally realized the gig was up and he killed himself. Now, so the Lord Jesus destroyed him. How? With the breath of his mouth? Well, here's some speculations on what that is. Destroyed him with the pure gospel because it comes out of his mouth. What goes out of his mouth with what he speaks, that is word, truth, command, or gospel. Adam Clark says it's the words of eternal life, the true doctrine of the gospel of Jesus. Well, no, I don't think so. I think that John Gill is right, that this is a quote-unquote manifest reference to Isaiah 11:4, which I'll read in the King James Version. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. Shall he slay the wicked? Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is going to blow on anybody to kill them with the breath of his lips, which is very close to the breath of his mouth. It's the same thing, actually. It's metaphorical. And and I'm sure Paul was referring to Isaiah when he said this. God didn't blow on anybody to kill them with the breath of his lips. It's just a poetic way of saying that he's, he's, going, to, he's going to blow on them to blow them over, but it doesn't mean God's literally going to blow him over. So I don't believe that Jesus is going to literally blow on the Antichrist, excuse me, not the Antichrist, the man of sin. He's not going to blow on the man of sin with the breath of his mouth. It just means he's going to destroy him and bring him to nothing but the brightness of his coming. Now, this doesn't mean there's an idea of dazzling light, as Barnes says. The word is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a Hebrewism, meaning the Jesus' splendid or glorious appearing, the brightness of his coming, his glorious coming. Let me read you a quote from Barnes. There is no necessary idea of splendor in the word, and the idea is not, as our translation would seem to convey, that there would be such a dazzling light or such unsufferable brightness that all would be consumed before it. It just means in the glory of his coming. Hot dog, he's coming. It's a spiritual brightness, a spiritual coming, not a physical brightness. He shall come 
as Adam, as John Gill says, he shall come in his spiritual kingdom and glory by the light of his gospel and the illuminations of his spirit. When at eventide it shall be light. When, when the sun of righteousness shall arise. When latter day light and glory shall appear. And latter day darkness, the gross darkness of popery, paganism, and Judaism, which cover the people, shall be removed, and antichrist in every form shall disappear. Adam Clark talks about brightness this way. Quote, it may refer to that full manifestation of the truth which had been obscured and kept under by the exaltation of this man of sin. So that would be a spiritual brightness, the brightness of his coming. John Gill says that, well, when I say spiritual, I mean the brightness is metaphorical, let's put it that way. And, of course, the you, you might say, well, if this is AD 70 and, the, and Nero is destroyed, how is Nero destroyed by Jesus' coming to judge the the Temple of Jerusalem. Well, if you read the history of the Jewish War, Nero was in the middle of it. He died in 68. Jewish War started in 66. And all the events around that war culminated in Nero going down by killing his own hand in AD 68. And so Jesus is said to be behind all this. So let me summarize the options for what brightness of his coming can mean. It can be a spiritual coming when he converts people with the light of the gospel. It could be a personal coming. This would be a futurist interpretation. As John Gill says, quote, when he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, which will be in flaming fire and great glory, and then will Antichrist and his followers, the beast, and those who have worshipped him be cast with the devil and the false prophet into the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone. All right, so that would be a personal coming in the future all right so options again john gill says it goes spiritual coming when the gospel wipes out lawlessness it could be a personal coming when jesus comes back personally at the end of time or it could be the judgment coming on israel in 8070 the brightness of his coming which is what i believe that paul was talking about we go now to verse 9 and 10 in 2 thessalonians 2 the coming of the lawless one is based on satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who were perishing. They perished because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. Now, what do, what false miracles are associated with Nero or with the man of lawlessness? Well, false miracles could be demonic miracles or could, they could be fake miracles, two different things. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown thinks that that Paul is here talking about demonic miracles, he says this in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus implies that the miracle shall be real, though demoniac. Such mysterious effects of the powers of darkness as we read of in the case of the Egyptian sorcerers. But Adam Barnes, John Gill, and, and excuse me, not Adam Barnes, Alfred Barnes, John Gill, and Adam Clark say that is, this refers to fake miracles. Now, this option is favored by those who think the man of sin is the Pope because the Catholic Church has so long been associated with false miracles. Here's what John Gill says about these allegedly false miracles, not demonic, but false miracles. Quote, such signs and miracles as are not real, but but feigned, only in appearance, not in truth, like those that were done by the magicians of Egypt. And these were done to countless lies and to induce persons to believe them. And how many miracles and lying wonders of the Church of Rome pretends to, everybody knows. I think the sorcerers in Egypt who threw the sticks down on the ground that became snakes, Somebody speculated that these snakes were kind of mesmerized somehow. They got stiff and rigid, and these sorcerers figured out how they could throw them down on the floor and wake them up, make them start moving. I don't know whether they're fake or whether they're demonic. It doesn't matter to me. Vespasian is called the miracle worker because by him many miracle, miracles occurred, Ken Gentry says. So 
the Roman emperors were famous for doing fake miracles. I don't know about Nero in particular. It doesn't say that Nero is doing it. It just says the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's work, and it implies it, but it could be that there's a lot of fake miracles going on around him, even though he's not actually doing it. And not only false miracles or fake miracles, signs and wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing, people who are dying are being deceived at the same time. And that unrighteousness which is causing people to perish, which is among people who are perishing, it's unrighteous. There's two ways it could be unrighteous. It could be open unrighteousness which deceives, or it could be deceptive, hypocritical unrighteousness which deceived. Either way, the lost are being deceived. Now we'll go to verse 11 by reading verse 10, the end of verse 10. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, verse 11, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. Now God didn't arbitrarily send them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false just because he feels nasty today. No, it's because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For that reason, because of their hard hearts, God then sent them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. In other words, if you believe what is false, then God will punish that disbelief by giving you more false belief. Not believing is a punishment for not believing. Now, this is an old idea. It's come, for example, in Exodus, I got one, two, three, four, five, six, the Pharaoh hardening verses. Exodus 9, 12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart's heart, and everybody looks at that and says, oh my gosh, God is so unfair, he just picked out Pharaoh to harden his heart. No, he hardened his heart because Pharaoh was an SOB that wanted to annihilate the children of Israel. Exodus 10, 1, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials. Arbitrarily, no, is in response to their sin. I could read four more. I want to save time. Now, Barnes has got something here Let me about this. He says that this sending them a strong delusion, what God did is he withdrew all the all that restrains unbelief. That's what it means by sending them a strong delusion. He just pulled back all the positive things that would make us to believe God. And I, th I think that sounds a little wimpy myself because I don't think that's what the verse says. Barnes says that God suffered men to show that they did not love the truth, or he put up with men. He tolerated them to show that they did not love the truth. Adam Clark says God permits permits, he's an Armenian, God permits strong delusions to occupy their minds, like God's kind of sitting on the sideline watching what happens when they sin. No, I don't think so. I think John Gill, the, the Calvinist, is right here. He says, God withholds light and knowledge by which error may be detected. In other words, God actively punishes them, but they deserve the punishment. And what he does by sending them a strong delusion is, he withholds light and knowledge. Well, you know, Gil, the Calvinist, is kind of agreeing with Clark, the Armenian, so maybe I'm being too hard here. Maybe just by God withholding things that would cause the the people to believe, then that's the same thing as sending them a strong delusion. But I don't know. Send a strong delusion says that it sounds like, hey, you guys want to keep on disbelieving me? Okay, well, I'll let you live in your fantasy worlds, and I'll send you some more delusion. I'll, I'll, I'll send you some LSD or the equivalent of it that existed back then. As I watch the people that are running the United States House of Representatives today and other people in the government and the people that are running the universities, crazy people, the Antichrist secular left, they are getting crazier and crazier. It started out with same-sex marriage. Well, that's accepted now. Oh, but well, now we've got to have thruples or thruples or whatever. We have to have man and a woman and a woman or a man and a man and a woman. And we got to have men 
participating in women's athletic events because there's no difference between men and women. Strong delusion, and they just get nuttier and nuttier. Well, probably the same thing about happened to people back then. They just circled down the toilet hole in their unbelief. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown summarizes this. He says, God, they say that God judicially sends hardness of heart on those who have rejected the truth and gives them up in righteous judgment to Satan's delusions. That sounds more like the way I would phrase it. Here's a relevant scripture in Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. And he, God, replied, Go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people, deafen their ears, and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. And, of course, Jesus quoted that when he was doing parables that the, the Jews that he was ministering to didn't believe. And he said, same thing. You go to him who ha much has been given, more has been given. But to him who has nothing, nothing's, he's going to have even less because his eyes will be blinded. Now, this verse in verse 11 says, For this reason God sends them, that would be the people in the Roman Empire, on the Protestant interpretation, on, on my Protestant interpretation, sends the people of the Roman Empire a strong delusion. The cult of emperor worship had spread all over the empire from, Julia, from the times of Julius Caesar to the time of Claudius. Claudius died in 54 AD. Julius Caesar was 40-something, 40 44 BC. I forgot his dates exactly, something like that. Now, even though some of the emperors didn't actually demand that emperor worship, they certainly allowed it, and it spread everywhere. Augustus didn't allow it within the city of Rome, but all across the empire, he allowed people to worship him as the divine Augustus. So these stupid Romans were worshiping a human being. Most of, most of these emperors were SOBs to boot, so it was a nasty god they were worshiping. So they believed what is false, strong delusion, because they would not believe the truth. We go to verse 12 and we'll finish up this man of sin section. So that all will be condemned. The so that refers back to verse 11. This reason, For this reason God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. So that, verse 12, all will be condemned. In other words, after they believe what is false, they will be condemned. And remember, they're condemned for, what, for their lack of belief. Those who did not believe the truth but enjoyed unrighteousness. Now, krino is the Greek word for condemned. That may refer to the last day, but not necessarily, according to Barnes. It could be hell, as Barnes says, but he, but he admits it doesn't necessarily have to be. It could be they could be condemned in 8070 when God comes in and wipes out all the, the Jews, and then he's going to wipe out all the people also who don't believe in the truth. I don't know. It sounds to me like it's hell to me because, you know, the Romans, they didn't exactly re receive punishment when Jerusalem went down. And it, this is uh, that all would be condemned, and half the time Paul uses all. It's all Jews and all Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they didn't really get punished by Jerusalem going down in AD 70. So I think it's, um, you don't believe the truth about Jesus, you're going to be condemned eternally. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Now let's look at this phrase, so that. Barnes says that so that has one of two ways of reading it. One is it marks the purpose which something is done. In other words, they didn't believe with the purpose that they would all be condemned. Or it can mark the result of something as which is done. Quote, as Barnes puts it, quote, denotes merely that something will really take place without indicating that such was the design of the agent. Now, the reason this is important, of course, is that if God had the purpose of condemning them, God will send them a strong delusion so that they will be, believe what is false with the purpose of condemning them. That bothers some people. Barnes says... To say this, that, that 
so that all will be condemned is merely to point out that to which the preceding words refer. It is not proper, therefore, to infer that this passage teaches that all these things will be brought about in the arrangements of providence in order that they might be damned who came under their influence. Well, I don't know why the arrangements of providence, as he puts it, God's will can't be that he condemns people who deliberately don't believe what he says. Another quote from Barnes, It cannot be proved from the scriptures that God sends on men strong delusions in order that they may be damned. And I say, why not? They deserve it. They deliberately believed a lie. They deliberately turned their back on God. Barnes continues, No such construction should be put on a passage of scripture if it can be avoided, and it cannot be shown that it is necessary here. Well, no, it's not necessary, but I believe that's exactly what it says. Here's punishment for people's sinful acts. So why can't God deliberately with the purpose of condemning people, carry out punishment for the high-handed rebellion against his will. I don't understand that. I don't know. Barnes must not be a Calvinist. That's typical the way Arminians talk. It scares them to death that say that God can punish anybody. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you stuck, if you have stuck with me this far, I think I owe you a summary of this complicated material. So let's look at, once again, the main question of who is the man of sin and who restrains him? Now, of all the speculations that are, that are out there, they basically divide into three categories. The futurists say that the man of sin is a future antichrist at the end of the world. Of course, there have been a million, and I'm speaking conservatively, a million speculations about who this future antichrist is. And of course, since it's talking about the future, we cannot verify or falsify these futurist claims, and so that's all they will ever remain as speculations. I know, as I've grown up, I've heard Henry Kissinger was the antichrist. I've heard that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist, the best president America ever had, is the Antichrist. Saw that in a movie produced by futurist Christians, shown on a theater. They had the gall to say that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. And that might have been what got me thinking that futurism is bunkum. I don't know. Or at least the dispensational pre-trib left-behind version of futurism, of dispensationalism, is nonsense. But anyway, that's what they say, and they say the, re the restrainer can be anything. It could be the Holy Spirit. John Walford says that. could be angels, my friend Rusty Intricate, who is a futurist. He's not a nutty futurist, in case Rusty ever listens to this, and I don't want him to get upset. He says that the futurist, the, the restrainer, is angels. Well, who knows? It's just speculation. There's nothing in the Scripture that tell you one way or the other. Who holds to this kind of futurism? Dispensationalist, dispensationalist as I've said. Catholics do. Orthodox Christians in the East, it's very popular. Now, what is the apostasy on this view? Well, that's a falling away from Christianity at the end of the world. All right, well, let's look at historicists. Who do they say the man of sin is? The Pope, or maybe the papacy. In general, not a particular Pope. Who is the restrainer? That's the civil power of the Roman government that restrains the Pope, as is what happened in the history of the Middle Ages as the Pope finally lost his power. The examples of people who hold this is Protestants, especially at the time of the Reformation. There's a small minority of historicists today in the modern church. And what is the apostasy? That's the falling away of true Christians into the Catholic Church and out of the Protestant Church. The preterist view is who is the man of sin? Well, there's two major preterist options. I gave you the Nero option. That's Kenneth Gentry's option. The restrainer of Nero is Claudius. And the other preterist option is the man of sin is John of Gashala, who I'm sure you've never heard of. He was the zealot who last commanded Jerusalem before the city fell in AD 70. The restrainer of John of Gashala is Ananias, the high priest, who kept John of Gashala from doing his dirty work. 
And Ananias was counseling surrender to, to Rome before John of Gashala finally killed him, so the restrainer was taken away. I don't know. I I think that's by a hyper-preterist view. John Noe is his name. I don't think that really, that doesn't move me. I think that's a fringe opinion, although I've seen it out there. So the major preterist option really is that the man of sin is Nero, and that's the one I've given you in this audio. Now, on the preterist view, what is the apostasy? Well, now, I think most preterists say it's the falling away by Christians into Judaism that occurred in the ninth, in the 60s, excuse me, in the 60s A.D. Uh, the entire book of Hebrews is about that apostasy, about people falling away from the faith. And First Timothy 4, 1 through 3 Timothy says this, now the, Paul says this to Timothy, now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Well, I think that's what it is, that's my preference, but Kenneth Gentry, the prominent preterist, he says, no, the apostasy is the falling away of Jews from the Roman Empire at the time of the Jewish war. That gives a datable and discernible time for the Thessalonians. They would see the clear indica indication of judgment coming by Jesus in AD 70 when they see that Jewish war start. In other words, Gentry says the apostasy is a falling away in the sense of a political revolution, and the word can be used that way. We're so used to hearing it as apostasy, meaning a religious falling away from the truth, but it can also refer to rebellion. He's got a lot of discussion on that, and that's worth looking into. I think that's a reasonable option, even though I don't hold to it. I could be changed. My mind could be changed upon further study. Gentry says that Matthew 24, 7, first part of the verse, where Jesus is giving the Olivet Discourse, Jesus mentions this falling away from the Roman Empire when the Jews fell away and precipitated the Jewish war. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 7, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now let's look at some strengths and weaknesses of the three eschatological schools. The strengths of the futurist position is that the appearance of the man of sin is tied to the coming of the Lord. And, of course, if the coming of the Lord is the second coming, then the man of sin is future. And we know that the coming is tied to the second coming in 1 Thessalonians 4. Even though 1 Thessalonians 5 is arguable, 2 Thessalonians 1 is arguably 8070, and as 2 Thessalonians 2 is arguably 8070, but at least they got 84, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 as the end of the world. And so if that's the end of the world, you can say, well, then all of it's the end of the world. And then so the man of sin needs to be future. And that is the standard futurist interpretation. Now, what are the weaknesses of the futurist position? Their future speculations cannot be proved or even judged. You can't falsify them. You can't confirm them. Futurists have about one million speculations about who the man of sin is. How can I disprove them? How can I say they're right? Nobody can. Each new speculation weakens the case for the 999,999 speculations that went before. Is it Hendrick? Is it Muammar Gaddafi? Oh, I remember Gorbachev. He had that little birthmark on his skull. He's the mark of the beast. And on and on and on. The foolish speculations go in there wrong. And then the dispensationalist futurists just wipe the books off the shelves and put a whole nother set of books with more speculation. And they make a ton more money. And gullible Christians buy those stupid books. The weakness of the futurist position is also indicated by the present preterist time indicators in the passage. For example, in Second Thess 2, verse 6, Paul says, and you know what currently restrains him. So already we're talking past, currently, at the time of Paul's writing in 51 A.D. So the future still have to now come up with some kind of restrainer that stretches for 2,000 years. And again, you wonder, well, what relevance does that have for the Thessalonians? My friend Rusty Intrican has a futurist response to this. He says the Greek in verse 6 does not have an object. So it is, doesn't say, and you know what currently restrains 
him, the him is not there. So, and you know what currently restrains, and he's exactly right about that. So the restrainer is restraining precursors to the Antichrist. I guess the mystery of lawlessness is already at effect, is already at work, says that. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, and so the restrainer, whoever that is, is restraining the precursors to the Antichrist. Well, that's, see, that's a little bit of a stretch. It's not exactly as restraining. It, it, that verse reads naturally. And you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. As opposed to, and you know what currently restrains. No object. Restrains what? Restrains. Well, I get, you know, it's possible that that's true. But it's still something that the futurists have to deal with. I would say that's a weakness in their position. Another preterist time indicator that's a problem for them. Second Thessalonians 2, seven for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. But the one now restraining. See, Paul is referring to things happening in his day. 51 A.D. when he wrote the book, wrote the letter. And again, the futures answer that by saying, well, the restraint started back in the past, but it continues all the way for 2,000 years. And to which I reply, really? So then what relevance is that to the Thessalonians? What do they care? Paul is trying to give them something that they can see to show that the day of the Lord is near. Now, it could be that Paul just didn't know and he thought that the man of lawlessness might show up and the apostasy would happen. And he thought it would happen in time for the Thessalonians to know that the day of the Lord was coming because those two signs were coming. But I can't imagine he didn't know. I can't imagine that he was mistaken about when they were going to show up 2,000 plus years later. I mean, he had all this revelation that Jesus personally appeared to him and explained to him all the events of the end time. And he's going to be in the dark about when the man of sin is going to show up. He's going to be in the dark when the great apostasy occurs. I don't think Paul would be that would have that much of a lack of knowledge about end-time events. So if he knew it was going to be 2,000-plus years in the future, why in the world would he tell the Thessalonians to look out for it, to look out for something that he knows is going to happen 2,000-plus years in the future? Or, okay, okay, to avoid that charge, if a futurist might say, well, Paul didn't know, to which I reply, well, why didn't he know? He had all these revelations about all about Jesus coming and transformations in the twinkling of an eye and the resurrection of the dead from the tombs. I mean, and he doesn't know when the man's sin's coming. He doesn't know when the great apostasy's coming. That's very weak if you're a futurist, in my humble opinion. Another weakness of the futurist position, depending on how you translate Second Thessalonians 2.2, where Paul says, don't be easily upset by a message or a letter that the day of the Lord has come. Well, if the day of the Lord has come already, all Paul has to do is point out to the to the tombs, they still got bodies in them, so there's no, been no resurrection of the dead, so no second coming. And by the way, where's Jesus? But of course, that verse can be translated that the day of the Lord is near, in which case that saves the futurist position, and they're still in the ball game for a while. The reason it saves the futurist position is because if you say that you are wrong in supposing that the day of the Lord is near, I can show you that the day of the Lord is not near because there hasn't been an apostasy, there hasn't been the revelation of the man of sin. If there had been such an apostasy or revelation of the man of sin, the day of the Lord is coming soon, but it's not hasn't come here yet. So in other words, Paul could use his argument. If, if, if the translation is the day of the Lord has already come, then Paul could dispute that argument by just pointing out the tombs have still got bodies in them and Jesus hadn't come around. And so that's the end of the futurist argument. But if it's translated the day of the Lord is near, Paul can't use that argument of the empty tombs and Whereas Jesus, because he is near, 
doesn't mean that the tombs would be opened up and Jesus would have come back. And so therefore it is still possible that the day of the Lord is near and therefore Paul has got to give them a sign, the apostasy and the revelation of the man of sin. All right, let's look at the strengths and weaknesses of the Astarsis position. The strength is the description of the man of sin sounds just like the Pope. And that's what struck me when I read it. I thought, ooh, maybe the Astarsis are right because it sure sounds like him. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God. Yeah, the Pope did that. Yeah, but so did Joseph Stalin. So did lots of tin-horned dictators, miles of dome. He sits in God's sanctuary. Oh, that sounds like the Pope sitting in the Catholic Church. He publicizes that he himself is God. He claims to do all kind of false miracles. So, yeah, it sounds like the Pope. The weakness of the Astarsis position is, first of all, the preterist time indicators was the Pope being currently restrained. The Pope didn't even exist when Paul wrote, but verse 6 says, And you know now which now restrains him, and you know what currently restrains well, how is the Roman government currently restraining the Pope? It didn't exist when Paul was writing. Another problem with the Starsis view is, did Jesus come in AD 500? Because if the coming of Jesus means the coming, excuse me, if the apostasy is the falling away into the Catholic Church, and if the man of sin is the Pope, you're going to have to carry that all the way up into the future, the papacy all the way until Jesus comes back. Well, I guess that's possible, but... The historicists always love to talk about the Protestant Revelation. Protestant uh, Reformation was the coming of Jesus to judge the Catholic Church. But it can't be in the case here because Jesus didn't come back with all the saints at the Protestant Reformation. So the historicists have to push that out to the future, even as they make all of their eschatological events focus on the 16th century A.D. I think that's extraordinarily weak, Eurocentric, if you will. Now, the preterist position, I'm going to assume the majority preterist viewpoint that the man of sin is Nero. The strengths of this position is the time indicators. As I've said, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7, and you know what currently restrains him, that's now 51 AD, so that he would be revealed in this time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, already working, 51 AD. But the one who now restrains will do so until he is out of the way or restrains but the one who is now restraining, Holman Christian Study Bible, the ESV has the one who is now restraining it, which could refer to the, it, the lawlessness. The one who's restraining the lawlessness will do so until he is out of the way. Anyway, those preterist time indicators are the strengths. So many ancient, another strength of the preterist position is so many ancient church fathers assumed it was Nero. I remember reading a biography of Nero that I randomly pick off, picked off the shelf at my college library where I was instructing. And that biography of Nero said that the early church had given Nero such a bad name that he thought that Nero had gotten unjustly a bad name, and he wasn't as bad as everybody made him out to be. And I said, well, now that's an interesting position. But what was interesting about it really was the fact that the church just assumed he was the Antichrist, called him the beast. No problem. Not very many people do it today, but a lot of people did it in the early church, and they were close to the situation. They were close to Nero. The weaknesses, of course, of the Preterist view, the one that's always held me up on this one for so long, is that Nero never sat himself in the temple of God, it sounds like. But in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, we see that these, this man of sin opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary. Now, that weakness can be dealt with by Ken Gentry. He says that hoste, so that, to sit, the Greek is so that to sit in God's sanctuary, hoste plus the infinitive can mean an intention rather than a purpose accomplished. 
as in they, the Nazarenes intended to take him to the edge of the cliff so that Hoste, they would, and so that he would be hurled off. But they didn't actually hurl him off. They had the intention to hurl him off the cliff, but they didn't do it. So Nero intended to set himself in the Jerusalem temple, but he never succeeded in doing it, just like the Emperor Caligula, a couple of emperors earlier, decided to put his image in the temple, but failed. And in my opinion, that's a reasonable speculation because the Jews were constantly opposing emperor worship, and what, what better way for the Emperor Nero to spite the Jews? Sitting in their holy temple is the perfect way. Now, of course, that's not the only way you can deal with that. You can say that you can use Thayer's definition and say that to sit, when the Greek infinitive kathisai means to sit, uh, excuse me, when it is used transitively with an object, then it means to set, to a point, to confer a kingdom on one. And I'm wondering if you can translate this phrase as Nero Instead of sitting in the kingdom, he appoints himself and confers a kingdom on himself, which would, of course, fit Nero's character pretty good. He's trying to usurp the rule of Christ as he ascends to godhood in the Roman emperor cult. Now, that translation depends on something that is over my head as far as the Greek is concerned, because you have hoste auton, which is an accusative, and you have kathisai, which is the infinitive, and so my idea is that so that he would, and so that to sit him himself on the temple of God. Now, unfortunately, that alton can also be used as what they call the subject of the infinitive, and so in which case the normal translation would fit, and so that he would sit in the temple of God. I don't know which. I don't know if my idea was it will work or not. So I've sent an email to two friends of mine who are experts in Greek to see if it will fly. It's just an idea I'll throw out there right now for future reference. It might work, but it's not necessary to use that argument. You can say that Nero intended to sit in the temple in Jerusalem and didn't do it. And another thing you could say is you, uh, you can interpret this thing in a way that doesn't rely on the Greek at all, but you could say that Nero actually sits in the church of Jesus Christ is God because he raises the temple, he raises the church to the ground by persecuting the church and therefore by doing that he is sitting in the church as God. That's a little bit more fuzzy, not quite as precise, but at any rate, one of those options will work, that he intended to set himself up in the temple of Jerusalem with hoste plus the infinitive meaning intending instead of actually doing it. Second possibility is you can trans possibly translate it as so that he conferred a kingdom on himself. And the third possibility is he sat himself in the temple by persecuting the church. And the temple is not the temple in Jerusalem, but it's the, the, the church in Rome, and he sat himself in the church at Rome. So he intended to set himself in the temple in Jerusalem, option one. Number two, he set a kingdom on himself, depending on the Greek translation. And option three, he set himself in the church, God's temple, which is the church of Rome, and he did that by trying to persecute the church. Now, another argument that is used against the predator's position is context. And this is a slippery argument. They, the critics of preterism say, well, 1 Thessalonians 4 obviously refers to the second final coming of Jesus because of the associated resurrection events. So, therefore, it makes sense that Paul is talking about the same day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 
Second Thessalonians 1 and 2 Thessalonians 2. He just keeps talking about the second coming the whole time. But I've already told you there's a lot of problems with looking at the day of the Lord as being a futurist day of the Lord, as I've already mentioned. And, in fact, I've made a pretty good argument. I think that 1 Corinthians 5, the day of the Lord, is talking about AD 70. And also in 2 Thessalonians 2, it's AD 70. Now, in 2 Thessalonians 1, there's a reference to, not a reference to the day of the Lord, but a reference to Jesus coming with flaming fire. And, of course, most futurists say that refers to the end of the world. I made the argument in the last audio that referred to AD 70. And it's interesting that Gentry, although he is a preterist, surprisingly to me, says that the passage in 2 Thessalonians 1 refers to the end of the world. I don't agree with him, but this is what he says. Let me read the passage again, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10. Since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. And to me, it's eighty seventy because how are the Thessalonians going to be repaid? How are they going to stop being afflicted 2,000 plus years later? They needed to be stopped now because of the Jews that were persecuting them then. So it surprises me that Gentry takes a futurist position on this, even though he is a famous preterist. And this is going to happen. This revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven will happen when he takes vengeance, when Jesus takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God. I think that's the destruction of Jerusalem. And those who don't obey the gospel, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction and so forth. Well, the context argument, the preterists can handle that. The main preterist argument, the main argument the preterists need to handle is the problem of Nero sitting in the temple. And I think I've given three possible solutions to that. Ladies and gentlemen, I am worn out with this audio this is the hardest thing that you will ever have to deal with. Maybe Romans 11 might might touch it. I don't know. No, Romans 11 can't touch this. This is a hard one. But I've done the best I can, and we're going to move on. And in our next audio, we're going to look at this. In our next audio, we'll take up 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, short audio. And we'll see how Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to apostolic traditions. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you manage to get through this one. <laughs> 